0: This is Horum with Horum's Quorum, and I'm happy to say that my guest today is Vineet Shahani. Vineet is director of legal at Google, where he joined from Nest, where he was attorney number two. So he's, uh, he's grown Nest and been a part of its growth and its success, and so he's, he's had a lot of success himself. And he's pretty humble about it. And when I was getting to know attorneys and getting to know people in the tech world and asking people, what attorneys should I get in the tech world? So many people said, you got to talk to Vanit. And I'm glad I did. Vanit and I have talked to her a few times now, and he's somebody that I always walk away feeling energized from because he has such a dynamism and enthusiasm for pulling information from different parts of the world uh, from different practice areas, he's not limited to tech. Uh, he's not just an attorney. He's thinking much broader than that. So I think the things he talks about here will be interesting to a lot of people who are trying to have a rich career and really move between different spaces. Um, we'll talk about the political world. We'll talk about the tech world, and some of the interesting connections he's able to make between those spaces because he's such a creative and open-minded person who just genuinely is interested in other people. So. Uh, with that, that's enough preamble. I think we can proceed to hear about Vineet. Okay, Vineet, I'm glad that we're doing this. Uh, you yeah, know, we, we've talked a few times now, and I just like have really enjoyed your worldview, and I like the way that you think about your success, and like how how much you've broken it down into principles and, and made it something that's successful. So. Uh, I just wanted to talk to you about a bunch of things, but we can start with, you know I figured that we'd start with a story that you shared recently about um, something that wasn't a success, because we can talk a lot about your successes, but I think this might be more interesting. And you said that you're applying for in-house jobs and in one of them, you're told you were overqualified as an attorney. I don't feel like that's something that people hear too often when they're applying. Uh, Tell me about that. Yeah, well, uh,
1: and actually you know, if we, if you want to step back for a second, I mean, I could give you my, I can give you my journey in like very pithy fashion. I mean, I kind of, uh, graduated college in 2000 during a boom. I lost my first job in consulting in a bust in 2001. I kind of escaped to law school and came out during another boom in 2005 and met with challenges in finding jobs in 2000, uh, in two thousand nine, in the last downturn, uh, and and so kind of as you can see, like I've I've come out of school during boom times, I've hit busts in the middle of my journey, and uh, and so sort of the the uh, era that you're asking about is uh, a time. This is basically when I had been at a law firm. I'd been at Latham for almost four years as a corporate associate and I wanted to go in-house, but that coincided with the last bust, uh, downturn and they were, you know, layoffs were happening and highly qualified lawyers were applying for jobs, probably levels below them just because they wanted to have a secure place to land. And so I was out looking for in-house, my first in-house jump from Latham to a company in that time period. And uh, yeah, I looked for dozens and dozens of jobs. I mean, I applied to be a recruiter at Axiom. I, I applied to uh, jobs at uh, you know big blue chip companies and also tiny no-name companies that you've never heard of. <clears throat> and one of the companies I looked at, because I'd kind of gotten through enough uh, doors being shut, was uh, this division of Tyco, which was making steel pipes at the time uh, in the South side of Chicago. I was living in Chicago at the time. And I went through several rounds. I was in the factory. Like I was going to be this like associate counsel at this steel factory basically. And at the end of it, they chose somebody else. And the the feedback was you're overqualified for, for this job. And, uh, uh, you know, I'd been underqualified. I'd been overqualified. Uh, that was just the era we were in at that
0: time. And so, you know, that was a rough market then. So then what did you do to hurdle yourself into the next role? So, I mean, really tight market. You had to, you know, do something strategic. What did you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I can't say that it wasn't a tough time at the moment. You know, at that time, I mean, I I was kind of a new dad at the time. The economy's low. Um, I knew I wanted to get out of a law firm. You know, I ended up taking a job at a small... Financial technology company. The word fintech wasn't really on the scene back then, uh, in Chicago, uh, which was far from the capital of technology. But what appealed to me about it was that I was going to be the second lawyer. I was going to own all the commercial and product sides of the business. The GC was a litigator, so I knew she was going to give me a ton of rope. Um, The the CEO was like 29 years old. It was an engineering-heavy company. So I, I decided to get over myself and not worry about the brand and and. Uh, really just go for the opportunity and the narrative because I guess in the back of my mind I really felt like this could be a stepping stone Um, and so I wouldn't say that I had my ultimately at that point I was just I was looking for a life raft and this one kind of came to me Uh, but in hindsight it was you know it was a great move because a year there is what propelled me into the you know the current career I have in Silicon Valley. And I, I actually don't think um, if I had stayed at Latham and tried to pitch myself to the, you know, the jobs I looked for the following year, which included Apple, which is where I ultimately went, I'm not sure I would have been as compelling of a candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, I think taking a chance on myself there, worrying, looking at the substance of the role as opposed to just the brand name, uh, you know, really ended up helping me out a lot.
0: So when you said narrative, tell me more about that. So you are thinking prospectively in terms of the narrative that, is this the narrative that you tell yourself or is this a narrative that you are for the eventual goal that you had of say, moving into another tech role? Tell me, tell me about what that.
1: Yeah. I mean the idea of narrative to me is important because we're all, when we make career switches and when I say career switches, I mean, even job switches, we have to like convince ourselves that like we're doing something that makes sense. And Sometimes it's easy. It's like, oh, I got a job at Facebook. Of course that makes sense. Everybody knows Facebook and they pay well. And it's a, you know, it's a nice brand on top of other brands I already have. But sometimes it's not that easy. You're trying to make a job to go to a startup. You're trying to make a, you're make, trying to make a decision to switch career paths completely and get out of the law. You're taking a public interest job. Um, you, in my case, you're taking a job at a company that people had never heard of in an industry that you weren't even sure you had any interest in. And so I had to look at at the job and say, how am I gonna sell this to the next job, right? And that was what I i guess, it was a combination of being turned down enough by the more conservative choices, the more, more stable choices, and getting around to the fact that I can sell this thing. Mm. In the, I didn't know how long it would take. I mean, I don't think you should ever take a job thinking you're gonna leave it because then it's probably a bad decision. But I knew it wasn't the last job and I knew even Chicago was increasingly looking like, you know, not going to be the place I was going to stay for the rest of my career. And so, but I got comfortable with the fact that, hey, the, the elements of this job, tech, uh, you know, the, the, the culture at the company, uh, the uh, kind of the, the age of the, the, the people that were there and, and just kind of the, the younger vibe of the place, like I knew that would be relevant for other tech companies, you know, even on the West coast. And that's, that's how I ultimately decided to leave a very white shoe, you know, kind of nice branded place to go to a no name kind of, you know, small company.
0: So how, you know, it seems like you were able to get over the hurdle of status really effectively. And I think status is an interesting concept because I think that particularly in law, status is such a big component of the practice. I think so many, so much of the, um, it seems like so often the status of a role and the desirability of the role are heavily correlated. You know, I think in other domains, there can be trade-offs. I mean, something like, you know, working in the government, I think a lot of times it's a high status thing, but, you know, it's, it's you know, not necessarily, it's not high income, for instance. So there's some certain trade-offs. But I think it's, I think a lot of people can see in law, okay, well, it seems like things are correlated. Okay. Status and income, quality of work. These are all correlated. Um, so how did you think about how to set aside the concept of status in, in order to pursue the goals that you had? Cause I, I feel like a lot of people whether well, they realize or are get hung up on status. Cause I don't, I don't know about you, but you know, I get a lot of people that reach out to me expressing interest in moving into big law and, you know, now my question for them is, you know, well, why do you want to get a big loan? I think so often it's because they think it's the right thing to do because it's easy thing to sell. You know, it's easy to sell to themselves It's easy to sell to other, their, their family members to say, okay, this is why I did that it is, you know, cause you can't go wrong with this. So how did you navigate past that? You know, the thing is, is
1: that I think I'm probably as into status as the next person. I mean, I don't, I'm definitely not above, you know, using brands and things as a shortcut of how to evaluate potential candidates or evaluate their experience. I mean, at some level, or, you know, we're all, we all love going to a cocktail party and having somebody kind of recognize something that we've done. I mean, there's, even if you don't, even if you don't admit it, I mean, everybody's got that sort of vanity to them. I would say though, that for me, and again, I can't claim that I was thinking this exactly when I was making these choices, but in retrospect, using uh, brand and like you know the the sort of uh, kind of the, the you know the like what these what 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 like the big brand names kind of it, to have those as a goal eventually, uh, but not necessarily think you need to have immediate gratification and get to that right away. I mean, a lot of the people that contact me because they see brands like, you know, Apple and Nest and Google, they're sort of like calling me to try to figure out how to get a job there. And my my advice is always, I mean, it depends on their background, but a lot of times they're, you know, three years into their career or five years into their career and they might be in a law firm and they might be in a pretty law firmy practice, like, Mm -hmm. you know, antitrust or something that doesn't lend well to like just jumping into a, you know, a corporate counsel role. I spend a lot of time talking to them about, I tell them a little bit about my story, but I'm like, you know, you don't have to hit a home run, right? You could hit a single. I mean, you can go to a stepping stone that will open the doors to that eventual, you know, like Amazon or Facebook or Microsoft or Google or whatever it is that you think is the pedestal you need to get to. It's it's healthy to keep those types of things in your long-term mind. It's unhealthy to think that there are shortcuts to those things. I mean, there's always stories of people that get there faster, but I think it's more healthy to kind of keep it in mind, but don't let it block you from doing better things in the near term that can get you there, ultimately get you there faster. And, and will have you be a better lawyer or, you know, a better professional when you get there. Cause those experiences that you had are going to make you better. And, and in my case, I do think I'm better at the jobs that I've had at these big brand name places because I spent time in, in things like this financial services company I mentioned or um, even between Apple and Google. I was at Nest and obviously that's something people now know. But when I joined, it was just making an expensive thermostat and it was 100 people with, you know, interesting backgrounds, but far from a certain thing. Uh, when you think about the big players that were already in that market and, you know, the low odds of a startup at that stage succeeding,
0: it's far from a sure thing. And consumer products are super hard to get right. So, yeah, a lot of things had to line up. Uh, If they line up, it was a big success like it was. But, yeah, there was a lot to have to line up. So then let's say, okay, let's take a company like Google. I imagine that, you know, a significant number of people there, your counterparts, are people who maybe they're at big firms and maybe, you know, this was their direct move, or maybe they were at another large tech company like Amazon or something like that. And now they're at Google. So maybe there's any number of people that weren't at a smaller company that were at that single, as you put it. So what do you think it is about your perspective that's whether or not that's true? I, I'm just saying that like maybe that's true. And maybe that's a, a jumping point to answer this question, but what is it about that experience that you have that gives you a different perspective over someone who didn't have the experience of working at a smaller scrappy company, maybe outside of Silicon Valley? Yeah, no, I mean,
1: look, uh, I mean, both between Latham and Apple, and then even at Nest before it was acquired, I'm writing my own forms. I'm, you know, I'm obviously we have, you can always kind of get law firms involved, but like most of my day is kind of not being too good for anything. You know, somebody comes to me with like, uh, you know, a, a citation because our landscaping is you know kind of disturbing the neighbors i mean i deal with that all the way up to a major technology access deal for the company that's like gonna kind of supercharge our roadmap to put you know a critical product out i mean it, i think that sort of scrappy i'm not too good for anything attitude is really valuable and it's and it's even value, it's, it's it's in many ways it's even more valuable um, when you get to some of these places that are full of, you know, like the Googles of the world that are full of accomplished people uh, that have all these kind gold of gold-plated resumes, because at the end of the day, when you're with, when those are your peers, um, you know, genuineness sticks out, and like, you know, being able to trust people and get along with people, and and I think people with those attitudes of, um, you know, I just I really want to do what's best for the business, I. I'm willing to kind of roll my sleeves up, and even if I'm several several clicks above somebody that's working on something, I'm gonna read it closely and get in the weeds. And I and I have the technical skills because of having been through this. Like, I can sit here and get right in the document and mark things up, and I can, you know, I all my comments are more actionable. I think in general, in my current role, because when it was just me or two lawyers, like every email had to be written with like basically you know actually filled with purposeful content that like all right the next step is to do this you know it wasn't just like pontificating from a glass tower you know it was like you you know here's the here's the red line and it's okay to send as long as this happens and that happens and like you know like everything is like kind of tied up in a bow for the person who's receiving Mm -hmm. it and I think when you are at law firms or when you're only at certain big legal departments and things, sometimes you can get away with just like kind of stopping at a certain point and not really like passing and delegating and stuff like that. And I think, uh, I I think, I've benefited from my experiences. I don't do that as often.
0: So, uh, you know, with someone, let's take someone that is, let's say someone has the goal of going to Google, then, and you're advising Hey, you know, Instead of fixing so much on this goal, think about the process and think about the skills you get and the narrative that you can constr- construct around that and how you'll sell that, how you'll get valuable skills and how you'll sell that. So prospectively, how can someone size up the kinds of ways they can sell an experience? I mean, because it seems like that's important that you know, if you're, if you're heading into something, you define it as a good option by saying, hey, here's the things I'll be able to sell about that to some other domain. How does someone think about that?
1: Yeah. I think, first of all, I think it's never too early to start looking at job descriptions and looking at LinkedIn and the backgrounds of people that are at places you want to be. It helps you kind of think about the language you should start thinking about and the, the, the experiences you should start looking for. But at the end of the day, when you're applying for something, you've only got the background you've got. You can't make up a set of experiences you don't have. But what you can do is you can, you can position it in a, much better way, right? Like I, I'm always getting resumes from people that reach out and I'm always happy to look at these things. And a lot of times, like people are applying for like a product council role at Google and it's still looks like a resume. That's like looking for a law firm job or looking for, uh, you know, something that's not on point. So like, I think you, 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 gotta be able to think about what's the role that you're looking for. And, uh, what are the things that they would like to see and do you have any of those things and even if you don't have them on point can you make up for them because you know uh, you know how to how to talk about it like an example is you know when i would interview people at apple uh, i would always obviously having a certain set of core legal skills was 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 necessary but most of my interview was about what they knew about apple and like what they knew about product technology questions i would have would be things like what do you read in your free time? You know, like to keep, to keep up with technology. Mm -hmm. I wanted to hear people talk about certain blogs that they might follow or, you know, different methods they had for staying on top of things. Uh, You know, or I'll ask at Apple, I used to always ask in interviews, you know, what, tell me about your favorite Apple product or a favorite Apple business decision. And why is that, why is that something you, you know, you, care about. What was your favorite response to that? Well, the worst response I would get would be, you know, people would tell me about how much they loved the iPad because it was like the first time they could see their grandparents like interact with technology and it was so simple and easy to use. And to me, that's a terrible answer because that's like, I could walk into an Apple store and somebody like off the street would probably give an answer like that. You know, the better answers were people that had thought about our, our app store and had constructive criticism or thoughts on why the app store was a limitation for companies or was an opportunity for companies. You know, some people had talked about our impact on, you know, kind of cross-border trade or manufacturing, or, you know, I mean, obviously I happened to sit in the hardware area. And so anybody was thinking about the job they were applying to, they might make their responses more relevant for those areas, but that to me wasn't a requirement. Like they could, A bad answer might be some oversimplified answer about marketing. A good answer might be how we've really pushed the envelope on, you know, less words, less claims, more imagery. And, you know, and why is that important? Like, why is that make, how has that made Apple more competitive and a better, you know, more distinct brand and all that. Um, You can just tell when someone talks through a question like that, whether they are pretty analytical and passionate and, how they might stand up in a room where they're getting criticism or they're the only no in the room and the rest of the executives are like, really want to just kind of not pay attention to this point out of legal. You can tell by a response. I mean, you know, another interview question, if we're just on the subject of like good interview questions I always had, and I still have asked this question mostly, is sort of like, I I get your resume, like I've, I've reviewed it and a lot of it makes sense, but I really want to hear about give me the biggest fuck you moment in this resume. Like when you did something and it doesn't have to be professional, like something that you did where people told you that's, that's, they thought you were a little nuts, right. Or they thought that you, you you were doing something that just wasn't conventional, you know, and this harkens back to like why I left Latham to go work at a kind of small fintech lending company that most people at Latham kind of rolled their eyes on, Um, you know, or, Why, when I walked in at Apple and had to like tell my even my dad who was obsessed with Apple and and uh you know was so proud that his son was working at Apple and I had to go tell him I was working on a thermostat and he he called it a thermometer for like six months, like he didn't even call it a thermometer. I think at some point he realized it wasn't a thermometer, but I think he loved that it pissed me off and he was still mad at me that I had left Apple and I could he couldn't you know and like so, but I, I mean, those are kind of you know. Those are kind of fuck you moments, right? Where you're sort of like, hey, I got to take a chance on myself, right? I, I, like, I know that not everybody's going to see how this makes sense, but if I do, if I keep doing things that everybody thinks makes sense, like I might be missing some incredibly great forks in the road, you know?
0: Hmm. So when else did you evaluate and figure out that you had a fork in the road? Like when else did you realize, Hey, like, I've just got to go my way on this and double down on my voice. What's telling me to go in this direction uh, against the conventional wisdom?
1: I mean, so, you know, obviously the, the jobs, I mean, those two things, uh, you know, I, I would say that the, my, my, op, my decision to leave Latham and go to the small company, I give myself less credit on that because, frankly, we were in a recession and you, your back's against the wall and you make those. I would credit that as much as I would credit me being some savant about the future. I think the decision to leave Apple and go to Nest was entirely a savant-y decision. And, it, and it, it was because Apple was doing awesome. I had tons of reasons to stay, a great career trajectory, very senior executives there that were interested in me staying a huge offer to stay that was well above what I was getting you know like a like just and I had, and I loved the company and I loved the people there and I still left and I think that was that was a time when I literally I feel like you know it more than anything else I've done I sort of I put myself on my own back and I sort of said you're just going to go do this and what was great was when I got to Nest, it was at the, at that time, a lot of Apple people too. And you were working around a lot of other people that had chips on their shoulders because they had walked away from Apple or maybe some other companies. And they probably were telling other people that, you know having to explain to other people why they did such a thing and like, it just made you want to succeed that much more, right? Made you want, made you want, like, that's the thing about doing something that's unconventional, it's the reason entrepreneurs and startup founders. I mean, I'm obviously, I haven't done that before and I have immense respect for those people, but most of the time they're a little crazy in that sense. Like they are trying to prove somebody wrong, right? They're trying to like, they have a chip on their shoulder, however they got it. And that's what is relentless about them and why they keep going into investors and getting rejected. And they keep going into, you know, having V1 of their product not make sense. Then they have to pivot to V2 and V3. Like it's that motivation, right? To be great and to prove other people wrong. And I think as lawyers, it's hard for us to find that. Like we, we picked a risk averse profession. yeah. So like you have to, you have to generate that, right? You can't, that doesn't just
0: come naturally to the, to the average lawyer. So speaking of generating part of what you're, so one part of the, what you're talking about is the importance of that vision and, and being someone who has a vision. Uh, sorry about that. And um that's one part of it, but I think it what you can also come up as a narrative from that is the importance of a community of people. So, you know, that's so much, you know, you know, what Peter Thiel talks about from zero to one is, you know, just following the smallest number of people. A startup is the smallest number of people that have some unique worldview, uh, you know, that you know, there's insiders and outsiders. And so I think that's, you know, and, and that's a view I think that's pretty common in it's just like that, that, that's kind of a, a widely understood concept is you know when you go to startup, it's a group of like-minded people steering in, in the same direction. What I think is now evolving is now you're seeing more and more people thinking about community and finding masterminds and groups of people however you know whatever tactical approach you think to that to find the like minds doing what you're doing and I'm really interested in that because as you know that's something that I'm working on you know, with my, you know, South Asian legal project. Um, but so I'm kind of interested to hear from you, the importance of finding like-minded people on a mission and just getting that mutual support and, and, and learning, you know, tools like, hey, like, how are you thinking about this? And, you know, how do you exchange ideas and exchange motivation with a pool of people, whether it's at a company or one that you create and you find, tell me about the importance of that and, and maybe tips for how someone can find that.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, yeah, community is super important, and I mean, I'll be the first to admit, like, I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around how we work with community in this virtual world versus, you know, the traditional sense of being in a room together and, you know, shaking hands and eye contact and all that stuff. Um, that's been hugely important to me. I mean, it was one of the reasons I left in mean, Apple. I feel like I had this great community, but I. Uh, you know, I I also felt like there was a whole aspect of Silicon Valley, like people that were really taking a risk and had, you know, a lot of uncertainty ahead of them that that I wasn't participating in when I was at a big company, right? And that's one of the reasons I jumped off. Um, And frankly, I got the job at Nest because I was an Apple person. And that's sort of the majority of the people that were there when I got there. I mean, I think you do have to use it's hard at the beginning of your career because you're generating that, but at some point the decisions you make before is what opens up what your community is in the future, because, you know, you're going to, it's going to be those people that you know, and the networks. And that that kind of is why, um, and we, I know we might talk about this later, but that's why I think you have to be involved in things outside of your career, Mm -hmm. you know, whether that's, you know, community service or you know the arts or politics or you know any of these things like that that hopefully is the in many ways that's a more controllable way to get community than just hoping you show up at a workplace that has people that that you get along with right because you can't always bank on that
0: So that's interesting because, you know, when I focused on community in my career, first of all, community was the thing that I think has charged me the most in my career. And that's why I'm spending a lot of time. That's why you and I are talking is because, you know, this is something that can be shared with a community of people. And I'm just enjoying spending time on relationships and learning from people about relationships. So but I've always thought about, you know, the the community that I focused on was so related to the work that I was doing. That's kind of, something I've advocated for is, you know, that's a great way to progress in a profession uh, is to target a pool of people that you just want to spend more time with. And for me, in Chicago, it was an in-of-court, you know, the Richard Lynn Inn. And so, but now I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, so I've got this great pool of IP attorneys and that's this pool of people that I know but you know in terms of expanding my worldview, you know now you know i'm doing different things to find different pools of people now so I'm, I'm kind of switching gears now with how i'm thinking about community it sounds like early on you were thinking about focusing on community outside of the work you were doing um so it's just it's really interesting to hear about that so i i have a hard time wrapping my head around how that's paid off in your career but so we can get into that i think the the starting point um is maybe talking with that outside community so I, I think in your case i think what you're referencing is your work in politics and yeah. organize a campaign so let's, let's just jump into that
1: yeah and i'm just closing this door because my uh third grader loves
0: opening closing doors and not following
1: through so uh well yeah i mean and look community is a tough thing i mean i can see what you're saying about wanting to kind of get into a different set of communities um I guess my, my simple answer to like a very tough, broad question is that like that more than even picking jobs and career paths and it, you know, that's a super amorphous area that, that is just fluid beyond belief. And so, I mean, in my case, um, and again, I don't know that I was as Machiavellian and intentional about this, but at the end of the day, like I've always been interested in politics. It's, it's why I, uh, so I, you know, I, I was going to major in political science. I didn't end up doing that. I majored in business. Um, I went to a consulting firm, but when that uh, got hit by the dot-com bust in 2000, 2001, I went and actually interned in the Bush White House. So I, I at the time I was more conservative leaning and, um, and I did that arm in arm with like kids in college and I was like two years out of college, but I did that just because I had a passion for Washington and wanting to like be close to power and that kind of thing. Um, and I passed up on an opportunity to stay there longer to go to law school ultimately. And I, my whole time in, in Washington, even when I kind of evolved from being more left, right-leaning to more left-leaning, like was filled with going like going to school, doing the day job, but then attending tons of events around politics, fundraisers, campaign involvement, uh, you know, helping uh, helping out and learning like wherever I could. I lived with Hill staffers all the time. So like, I was like, you know, even though I, I was always the one with like the sort of law firm, like which one doesn't fit in kind of job, I, I sort of always kept my, I kept up with the lingo and the... the and so for me, um, I always thought I'd go into something political full time. And then I ended up leaving Washington in 2008, around the time my daughter was born. And when I got to Chicago, it was tough because I had this huge network in DC. DC is just full of people that want to talk politics all the time. And then I come to Chicago, I don't have the network. Everybody in 2009, when I got there, was leaving Chicago to follow Obama to go into his administration. Mm -hmm. And I come back to a city that's like, kind of, kind of empty of like political energy, frankly. Uh, And I ended up reaching out to uh, then deputy treasurer, Raja Krishnamurthy, who uh, I had met at a South Asian Bar Association event, actually. And Raja, all I said to him in in my ping was like, hey, you've been around Chicago politics for a while. I got to imagine you're going to do something cool next. When you do, just let me know. And he wrote back to me and said, "Hey, can we meet at the sandwich shop at like eight a.m. Uh, you know, later in the week?" And sandwich uh, shop. Uh, it's called Corner Bakery, so it's not. Yeah. It's not. It's not some. I was gonna. It, I, I I didn't want to like say Corner Bakery. It's so corporate. I was like, you know, it's That's not some.
0: Be beef or something, but no good. Okay.
1: Uh, it's not some hip like you know like you know super like uh, Chicago original. Uh, it's a corner bakery. Washington and Wells. Great
0: pastries, but
1: yes. Yeah. And uh, so Corner Bakery at Washington and Wells, it's still there. So, so basically I I show up, Raja's there and and one of his best friends from high school is there. And the three of us are sitting there and we start talking and it's pretty clear Raja wants to run for state controller, which is one of the like four or five constitutional offices statewide in Illinois. And I knew nothing about the office. I barely knew Raja. and the three of us are just sitting there with notepads and we start taking notes about what we got to do and how do we even start a campaign. He had never run for anything before. Uh, and that's kind of how it started. I mean, and I think my, my reasonings for wanting to work on it was number one, I was interested in being involved in politics all along, but number two was pretty selfish. Like I knew Raja was a, a, a really, you know, he was going places, he, he had a great network. Um, I was there at the ground level and I knew I was going to meet a ton of great people in the process. In addition to getting the cool experience, and so even if we lost, and we ultimately did lose in the primary by a hair, um, I got a ton. I, I was going to get a ton of great experience and meet a ton of great people, which both happened. Uh, and and obviously, I ended up leaving Chicago a year later and coming out to Silicon Valley. Raja and Mark still work together. R- Mark is Mark is the other person that was there. He's Raja's chief of staff, and Raja is obviously just was re-elected last week to his third term in Congress. So, you know, it it's it, it sort of, uh, those guys obviously had a great run, and I obviously, you know, I, I got a lot out of it too uh, and just went in a different direction.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the theme already we're seeing here is, you know, you're thinking in terms of, you know, what's the payoff profile of this move? You know, I think, Chris, we can see in several moves that you've made, you're saying yourself, okay, what's the upside and what's the downside? And you are betting in terms of things that have higher upside, you know, going to, to, going to the financial services company, lots of upside in that move in terms of the skills that you gain. Um, going from, you know, established blue chip company like Apple to Nest, a lot of upside. Uh, and then, you know, this politics move even earlier of like betting on a candidate, whether or not they would lose or not. It kind of reminds me of, you know, like Cory Booker's, you know, his run in Newark, you know, it was a really smart move for him politically because, you know, I was from New Jersey, so I can say this, but Newark was in shambles. And so he knew there's little downside to making that move. If, if, if he didn't make a dent in Newark, big deal. It was already so hard, but any positive changes he could make, big deal. Uh, so I think that's a really smart move in politics and other domains. Um, so I, I, we can talk more about that sort of payoff profile, I mean, I guess fast forwarding. This is kind of skipping around from time at politics, but like, how are you thinking about that now? I mean, I, I know that you are an investor, and so that you know, that's that's something that you know, maybe that's your outlet for that. Is there anything you're doing professionally otherwise that is allowing you to think in terms of how can I, how can I do this thing and take the step forward that has this the same kind of payoff profile?
1: Yeah, you know, I. Uh well, and, and just to close the loop on Raja, like, again, to me, that's another example of, I think there's a lot of people that would have been like state controller, like what, what does that, that person do? And, uh, and might have been more interested in a sexier race, like somebody running for Congress or somebody, you know, somebody with a higher brand profile already. Um, I, at the time, again, I, I, I sort of looked at it as the candidate, like the substance that was going to be involved, like, um, so I I think, I think just not lining up an opportunity based on the brand and what's there today, but thinking about it more forward looking, it applies in jobs, it applies in politics. I think looking back, you know, one of the reasons I, I, I always encourage anybody that's, you know, I think a lot of people are now even more so than ever politically interested, but I always encourage people to go work on a campaign or go out there and try to meet some younger candidates that are, you know, not yet there, but you can tell have all the tools to be there. Is uh, it's kind of like betting on a startup. I mean, you know, you're 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 getting in early. You're uh, you're getting into a small circle of trust early that that person's never going to forget. That person, no one decides to run for any office, controller, Congress, whatever, unless they already have a pretty good rolodex and they already have, you know. Uh, there, there's already a ton of things you can benefit from by being associated with that person. I mean, you, you can't get elected otherwise. So in Raja's case, like there was, and he already had such great rich networks from his time working from Obama, for Obama. Um, his He was a partner at Kirkland and Ellis at the time, right before he became deputy treasurer. Obviously he had been in government. Um, he had all these CEOs and other people around Chicago that I got a chance to meet because often Raja would be like, all right, you know, here's a group of people I can't get to, or I met all these people at this event last night, like you wanna call them and tell them you work with me and like, you know, see if they have any interest in, in donating or doing something else for the campaign. And I was always eager to do that because to me, why else would a mid-level associate at a law firm have a chance to talk to a CEO of a company? And it never, but I would quickly go to these meetings and meet them and go to their office and, and sit down. And, and after a couple minutes of talking about the campaign, would naturally move over to like me, and and of course, this is where you need to be, you know, really good about your socializing and like kind of be kind of savvy in different situations with people of different levels of, you know, stature. But, you know, it got to the point at the end of a lot of those conversations where they became my contact and my friend, right? And, I mean, I still have tons of those contacts in Chicago, and uh, and it, it helped me. Be better as a lawyer and, and an executive counselor when I got put in positions where I had to counsel senior people. Um, it's helped me professionally. Um, it's helped me continue to be a good fundraiser for other candidates. Um, you know, it's just kind of a win all around uh, getting involved in a campaign at that state. And I, I think it's something we talk about community. I mean, it's it's a more controllable way to find people that you'd have no reason to come into contact with. But that you have like-minded been, worldview with. Like-minded worldview or, or even not like-minded, but ultimately like open your eyes to like, oh, wow, that person really isn't interested in this campaign. And, and here's why. I mean, we had a couple of those. I had some really rough meetings. I remember back then where people had very specific reasons why they, they didn't want to get involved or they didn't like the other candidate better or they just hated politics generally because they thought it was, you know, what, you know. So, but that's all formative. Like that's all... Um, I mean, that's all learning. That's great.
0: So who is the most interesting person you met? You don't say, if you don't want to say, you don't want to stop who it is, but who, you know, describe the person, the most interesting person you met or or the most interesting conversation you had. Because I, I think that'll be helpful to kind of wrap our heads around. Okay, like what does it mean? So sure, like your, you know, fourth year associate, whatever, and, and you're meeting people and that's great. But like, what did you actually experience in these conversations? So somebody can wrap their head around what that what that's like. Yeah,
1: I mean, look, I met, like uh, I met again, you know. Raja had like a con. He had a number of lawyer contacts, so I met like a very, very famous uh, class action plaintiffs lawyer who's you know done very well and is a, um, actually kind of a you know gotten actually made his name heavily on like kind of coming after tech companies and such. And I, I met That's him. This is. I, I sort of met him earlier on, and really tough personality, like. I mean, he's good at his job for a reason. I mean, he's just no bullshit. And, you know, you don't know what you're going to walk into. Like, actually, it's interesting, but, like, that was the roughest meeting I had. He had no interest in supporting. He, you know, he. it kind of became clear where he wasn't really going to be interested in, in even contributing or sort of doing anything with the campaign. But, like, I. it's a formative meeting for me because... I remember going in feeling like I probably had a streak of like good meetings with senior partners or with other people who were like, yeah, of course, like the campaign sounds great and Raj is great and whatever. And I get to a guy who literally, you know, just like, was just so had all these good, all these reasons why he had no interest in politics generally and in this thing. And, and he had all these complaints and he was very curt and like lots of F bombs. And I, and I remember, uh, Walking out of there feeling like, like, you know, we had kind of dejected about it. But I then went to Apple. You know, a year and a half later is when I sort of was was sitting in in, in a in a corporate environment that is a pretty rough place in its own right. I mean, it is a really secretive, you know, hard charging, results oriented, no bullshit like, uh, you know, expletives and meetings like. You know, you know, you gotta, you know, go big or go home kind of thing, and a meeting like that was like formative for me, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, not everybody's gonna like you, and, and you're not gonna always be the good guy in the room, and um, and so you know, there's an example of like there were things like I got tons of friends and like you get all this huge net, but like there was also uh, rough moments that actually I think make me a better lawyer, a better counselor better
0: professional. I love that because, yeah, I think about my own experience in politics. So, you know, I worked, you know, I I was a canvasser, so I raised money knocking on doors. And then later I switched to being a field organizer in 2004. Uh, We would think we were on on opposite ends of the political spectrum back then. Um, But, you know, so you, 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 it was a great experience to learn how to get a $200 check from a total stranger. Like I was, 21-year-old kid in jeans just getting, you know, big chunks of money from people's cash sometimes just from total strangers. So that was cool to be able, okay, like I'm learning this tool of persuasion. I'm learning how to have um, these conversations. That's great. So the wins were great, but maybe just as useful was, you know, the, uh, the people who uh, slammed the door on you or, or, or got in your face. Uh, you know, think about that at that time, but, you know, those are the things that really paved the way... You know now when it comes to cold calling, if you tell me, "Hey, Horam, here's you know, 50 people you have to cold call," I'm like no problem. You know, just like you know, if 49 of them hang up on me, I, I really don't care. I just know how this works. Yeah, imagine, you know, for so many of the people in our field, you know, there it's been a very tracked life. It will build on a lot of success and a lot of yeses. You know, they don't realize it. They think, "Oh, I'm a litigator. Me some no. It's not the same." You know, like an opposing counsel saying no, a judge saying no. It's not the same. It's just someone rejecting who you are. Like. People will reject you say, okay, well, you know, the rules of civil procedure, bar what you just did. Okay, fine. But like people just saying, no, I just don't like you. That's something totally different. Um, so yeah, I think that is a great experience. You don't think about in those terms at the time, but those are the kinds of, uh, I think we're talking about right now, some of the benefits of what you might call the downsides of the role or the failures. I think and that's something that you alluded to earlier is, you know, how much you can extract out of failure and the opportunities in failure or setback. 100%.
1: And I mean, that's why for me, uh, I mean, obviously, I haven't spoken very much about my current role, which is a great role, and, and Google is a great company, and I'm, you know, incredibly fortunate to be there. But the reason I'm not talking about it that much is because as of late, I haven't hit as much failure, right? I mean, I, I like, you know, the company's going well. I mean, I've had the fortune of being part of a good career trajectory there. I, I love the colleagues. Like, so, I'm not talking about it, not because I'm not proud of it or it's not interesting, but because I actually think the more useful instruction for a lot of people, especially attorneys that are just getting started, is where I came from. And the fact that I, this is now my, if you want to call this a downturn, this is the oddest of downturns because of where our stock market is and some other things. But um, if we're going to just call this a third kind of economic, uh, you know, uh, kind of some economic challenge. Uh, I mean, I lived through the last two, and and they're very much a part of uh, what I what I what I think about when I'm you know making hard decisions or talking to executives or uh, or looking at people that reach out to me on LinkedIn that have that I don't even really know that are reaching out and saying, hey, you know, I read your background, and you know, I think you could help me kind of think about next steps or or connect me with people. And I always take those calls. And I had two of them yesterday. And it's mainly because I did that when I was their uh, their vintage. And it got me to where I was, it helped me. And a lot of those people that I talked to, I still found a way to, I mean, some of them are still great friends and mentors. And I just think you got to pay it forward. And for me, selfishly, it actually gives me fuel to continue pushing myself forward right I mean is is like if, if, if all I see are people that are that of quote made it you know I mean I don't know if that's a real word I don't know if anybody ever quote makes it but for the sake of argument we'll call the people that I work with right now people that have made it like I need to pull myself out of that and I have to look at you know I have to look at a broader view and that's what I get out of hopefully helping people but selfishly they help me too uh, and, and I think that's that's it's sort of always been kind of something i've kept in mind
0: so thinking about you know so you're on the other end of getting these requests of you know hey you know can we talk and it's great that you want to take those you know it sounds like you'll take you know them as you get them but in terms of the people that are reaching out to you and these are people that should just be reaching out period in general, to. You know, some pool of people that they're trying to get to know to, you know, in line with what you were suggesting earlier about, you know, finding opportunities and, 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 you know, things that have that asymmetric payoff. So what are ways you've done this a while now that you, you, you've gotten used to, you know, you know, doing these outreach. So I guess two questions is, you know, what are things people can do to improve their outreach? So I mean, like you reach out to Raja and said, Hey, you know, let me know how I can help. Is there something, you know, so you know what made you what what did you think you could bring to the table, and then what you know could someone be a little more intentional about sharing that they can bring to the table, and like how can someone be a little more strategic about you know how they can present themselves to a person? Uh, maybe we can just talk about that first.
1: I'm really glad you asked the question because, kind of like I was talking about when people would come interview at places like Apple and Google. And I feel like they would just be a bit clumsy in, in their preparation and not as thoughtful in in their responses. Uh, I mean, I think there's a definite art to networking and uh, not just the networking, like especially networking in a virtual sense where you're kind of reaching out over LinkedIn. Uh, you know, I think, I'll, I mean, look, I'm one of those people that just responds all the time, but I, I know more, more often than not, people are not like that. And you have a much better chance of somebody responding to you and being eager to pick up the phone and talk to you or get coffee with you. If you, you say something that's indicative of the fact that you've actually thought about why they would be a good person to talk to. So not just saying, Hey, you've got a cool LinkedIn page. Let's talk. It's sort of like, Hey, I'm currently working on this and I'd like to be working on this. And it looks like you made a similar jump. Like that's really fascinating to me. I mean, I think it just increases the likelihood of response. So then, all right, you've gotten the response and you've got the person on the phone or whatever, VC. And then, you know, I think coming there and there's obviously a little bit of like, kind of like this podcast, like sort of like uh, us, there's some warm up and there's some trying to get to know the person, but then you really, your goal is to get to like the crux of some substance, right? Cause like, you, you really like to learn some things from the person. Um, you'd also like the person to start to take some investment in you, right? Because they sort of feel like you've got some, uh, you've got some moxie and you've got like uh, something that they want to help out with. So there's like an art to like 30 minutes where like there's a little bit of warm up and you're sort of like, oh, you know, I saw you're from Michigan. Like I went to Michigan, whatever. And then they're sort of like have an objective of like specific things that the person did or the people that they know that you want to ask about. And then I think you got to leave time at the end of it to, you know, make some asks because otherwise it's just like an interesting 30 minutes, but like, what'd you really get out of it? So I think your asks are usually like, Hey, if you don't mind, I offer this prospectively, but I don't think people necessarily do like, Hey, if you don't mind, like, you know, if there's somebody in your network on LinkedIn or something that looks interesting for me, like, would you, would you mind putting me in touch with them? Uh, you know, that's a good thing to ask. Another good thing to ask is, like, this is, this is kind of where I'd like to go. Do you have anybody that has, like, you know, that you can think of that has a story like mine that w- would be good for me to talk to after you? And again, I'm telling you something that I do without the person asking, but I don't know that everybody would do that. Like, so whenever I'm talking to somebody, like yesterday, the person has, like, is it a law firm and has, like, feels like they're kind of stuck in a particular vertical I immediately have the name of like two people that I know are kind of stuck in similar verticals and made a jump into something else. And I left the competition being like, if you want, I'll introduce you to these two people. And, uh, you know, they, they they're more specifically on point for what the challenges that you have. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I think those are a couple of things that you can tangibly get out of a conversation, uh, you know, but it takes legwork. Like you got to be up for having these conversations and then following up and saying, thank you. And like, I get why people don't do as much of this. Uh, it's, it's, it's not, you know, in addition to all the stuff you got to do for your job and family, like this networking stuff is, it's a lot of work. So, uh, you know, you got to do it with some purpose in mind. Um, and, you know, make use of the person's time that you're talking to, because likewise, they have other stuff they could be doing, you know, if they weren't talking to you. So you've got to, you know, you got to make it worth their while as well.
0: So how have you made it easier for yourself to sustain relationships over time? Because I imagine with how busy you are and, you know, how experienced you are at this, it's got to become something that's more efficient. Like, you know, like by now, I consider myself to be someone who's experienced at working out. So it's very efficient for me to, to calendar in, a 20 minute workout, whatever, uh, because I've, I've, I've gotten a lot of experience. There's not a lot of warm-up and prep I need for it. And a lot of question marks about how to approach it. So I imagine for someone who's experienced as you, there's probably some set of habits or routines you have with growing your relationships and sustaining your relationships. So, so talk about that.
1: Yeah. So when I used to have a cafeteria at Google that I could host people in, I would have a goal of like one to two interesting coffees a, a month and Often that would be me playing the role of like reading an article about somebody interesting and shooting them an unsolicited invite or email and saying, Hey, I really think what you did here is cool. It might be political in nature. It might not have anything to do with tech or whatever. And, you know, I don't know the hit rates half and half, you know, which is pretty good. Cause but back in the what day, people are this, these are just, yeah. What kind of people? I mean, city councilmen or, uh, or tech people like, like, you know, sometimes, uh, or VCs or, uh, or whatever, like it wouldn't be like, and it's not, I'm not trying to like, it would, it would genuinely be that like, they did like, I read something, I wasn't looking for them, but like, you know, I, 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 I somebody that just got promoted to GC of an interesting company and like, I think it's cool. And I'll just, I work between Mountain View and San Francisco. So like, usually that's close to somebody. And, um, so I always had that goal and I've been doing that for years. And so, you know, Google's kind of paid for coffee for lots of people to, to, for me to talk to but I'd like to think through those people, I've met candidates for a lot of jobs that we need. I've, you know, I mean, it's the same, you know, it's a, it's obviously a. Uh, I think it's a good use of, um, your time in the workday, you know, however you do that. Um, I think that, um, uh, so I, I would make a goal of like doing that. I think something else I do, I, so I'm not a big like Facebook or social media person, but I actually get an email every day from Facebook or LinkedIn about birthdays. And I'm usually somebody that doesn't just write on somebody's wall because I don't actually really write anything on Facebook. I That's my opportunity to send a ping to people that I haven't talked to in a while. And I'll just say say something like, hey, I just thought it was your birthday today. Happy birthday. And it will be an email. And it'll be, and I've done it, for years, but I do it even more religiously in the pandemic and that I've gotten, you know, on VCs and calls with people that I went to high school with and I haven't talked to in forever because I sent them an email on their birthday saying, you know, happy birthday. Um, am I covering like the 5,000 or whatever people in LinkedIn that I've got? No way. Like, but am I, am I, am I picking up some interesting conversations and Having some interesting new people and new opportunities kind of flow through, in aggregate by doing some of this stuff. Yeah, you know
0: what's emerging from this? Let's let's get a little more specific about that. Is this just like totally free flowing? Because you know, there's a trade off. You know, between being free flowing and systematic. I mean, these days, you know, what's really popular in you know the Bay Area and Silicon Valley is you know note taking apps and being really systematic about knowledge management. And I can see the appeal and I've given some thought, you know, I use Evernote really heavily and it's somewhat well-organized, not particularly. There's a handful of notes I use really heavily. Okay. Uh, When it comes to reading, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I float between multiple books I kind of follow what's interesting to me and try to find things that are just going to apply to the things I'm thinking about right now. Um, So I, I have this kind of loose style. That's I think pretty practical. And maybe there's room for improvement, but being a little more systematic there. I'm not sure. So I'm just kind of curious, like, what's your style? Like, is there?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I think when I was like back in the day when I was looking for jobs, you know, like, um, I mean, honestly, the last job I looked for was the uh, fintech job in Chicago because, well, sorry, no, no, after the fintech job was Apple, really, because since then I've been in Silicon Valley for 10 years and, you know, I haven't really looked for jobs in in a big way. Like back then I was, we didn't have all these apps and things in 2009, but like I was, you know, I had an Excel spreadsheet and I was, you know, fairly, uh, organized about who I contacted and what we talked about in the generic sense, and whatever. Um, I'd say I'm, I'm not that systematic anymore. I mean, it's a lot more spray and pay, you know, I just sort of like, you know, obviously like I get an email and it might have like. 15 people's birthdays and I'm only going to reach out to like two or three. And clearly I'm biasing towards people that I think might be more interesting to stay in touch with. Um, cause yeah, you don't have enough time in the day and you don't, you know, like, like I was talking about maybe reaching out to one or two people a month. Like clearly it's, there's some purpose to that. Uh, but I would say that the only like record keeping I have, if you're kind of getting to that level of like tacticalness is just, they're a LinkedIn contact, you know, like I don't even, they're not even in my phone, frankly, because we probably didn't get to the point where I had enough texting or calling or emailing with them to even get them into my contacts, like in my phone. So it's, it's really LinkedIn. Like if someone erased my LinkedIn, I think it would be damaging because it's, it's, it is basically every person I've met through all these different wandering experiences.
0: So, you know, we haven't talked a lot about tactics, or principles but, uh, that, uh, behind the tactics that you use for for everyday life. I mean, I think we've talked some about, you know, big picture concepts, like, you know, this whole, like, thinking about singles and thinking about the payoff that you can get from a move and how much upside there is. Okay, we talked a little bit about that. But in terms of day-to-day, I think that's kind of interesting. So... You know, it sounds like, and I'm curious if you agree with this, it sounds like you're uh, there are at least some ways in which you're opting for simplicity. So there's just a simplicity in the birthday. It's just elegant. Just, you know, people are happy that day to get the email. You know, of course, they're getting other congratulations, but who who's... They're, they're you're not
1: getting that emails. They're not getting that many emails, actually. You they're know, they're
0: getting a little, So, I mean, yeah, I don't get a million emails my birthday. So, and if I got one from an I'd, I'd feel pretty special, honestly. You'd probably write me back.
1: You know, and maybe, I mean, that's, that's it. Right. Like, I, I mean, you know, like we,
0: yeah, I mean, and so, I mean, tactics simplicity like about simplicity, I mean, that seems like maybe is simplicity like a, a, a premise you thing like what's the simplest way to do something or.
1: Yeah. I mean, so birthdays, like I said, you asked like, Hey, how do you keep like thousands of contacts in the air and like in touch with them? And I said, I, I can't, and I don't, and I don't think you can, but here, here's like a, a method of just, you know, shooting into a barrel and, and, and hope, you know, like, and just continuing to keep your, like, for me, and it's been even more valuable in the pandemic, like when I connect with somebody that I haven't talked to in six years, and here's somebody who, you know, get to totally learn about how their life's been for the last six years and, and get to think of a thought that isn't related to the pandemic, because like, I haven't talked to the person since back when we were able to just meet up at a restaurant like so like i think it's been very cathartic that way um but you know i I think i guess i you get to a point at least for me where i just and maybe it's because i just didn't come up in an era where these apps and stuff were like as pervasive and as and i wasn't as data driven as like i would say some of the younger you know at this point um i get more comfortable with just kind of doing what's you know, what what feels like the right reach out or like the right thing and kind of feel comfortable that like, hey, I've got I can search my emails or I can search LinkedIn if I need to find that person again. I do think there's an element of memory to this though. Like I I do have an uncanny way of remembering things about people, like, you know, like where they're from. I usually remember what city like like now that you said you're from New Jersey, like I probably won't ever forget that. Like there's certain mnemonic devices that, I mean, I don't think I like intentionally do it. It's just, Mm. if somebody tells me where they're from or where they went to college or maybe a favorite sports team or something, like there's a decent chance I remember it, even if we have like a cocktail conversation and I don't talk to them for four years. And so, and I think some of that is natural, but some of that is just interest. Like, I mean, I just, I mean, I want to remember it, right? So I do. I mean, um, I think... uh, so I think you can do this the sort of more free flowing kind of thing and it can work, but it's lower percentage probably overall than being super organized with a database. It, it's also takes more of your mind right. to, to write than uh, somebody that can just rely on their notes, you know? But I mean, I guess you get to a point where especially when you introduce three kids into the mix, like I have that you just, you don't have the, cycles to, uh, to invest in that type of, uh, you know, the the more systemic, uh, you know, system.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I am, I'm kind of like you, I feel like, you know, like I I have noticed younger people that are so data driven, as you say, and it's interesting. Like, I think, you know, like you were talking about earlier, I think there's a lot to be said for just taking interest in younger people, just to understand their worldview and what energizes them and get that energy from them. And so it's something that I'm interested in exploring because it's something that I feel like would be energizing and it's a good challenge uh, to think a little bit differently. But yeah, I, I kind of like the appeal of being a little looser. Um, but having said that, you know, I do think I buy into that whole getting things done framework of, you know, if it's in your head at some level, it's a source of anxiety, you don't realize it that way. Uh, Cause I really like, you know, I, you know, I've done a good job of, of not intaking a lot of politics in the past few years. I think I've done a really good job of managing my inputs in that way, and uh, I saw a tweet from Paul Graham. He's like, "Yeah, I just feel like someone just killed a process that was just like running on five percent of my CPU for the past four years." And it's great because, like, I think that's a really apt way of thinking about. It. It's like, yeah, I mean, just like at some level, I, of course, I have been thinking about politics. Um, so there's something said, you know, that's illustrative of this idea. Like, if there's ways you can take things out of your head, uh, it's worth doing. You know, we only have a few minutes left, so it's okay if this is something we, we talk about very briefly, uh, and if it's something that you know we just kind of tantalize and, and maybe explore another time if we do that. Um, but I'm curious, you know, what role finances played in your evaluation of your move to Nest? Like, how did you size up your financial position? Because I think that's something that I've, I'm currently interested in people that experience success is how they thought about their finances as tools for moving in the direction they want to go in. You know, if you've had some fortune, because I think this position that um, you know, we were talking earlier about the importance of talking to people that are going from zero to one. but we also want to talk about tools for getting people from one infinity. And you know on the one infinity front, you know so let's say there's any number of people who have experienced some degree of financial success and now they're figuring out, okay well now what? how do I make the most of this? What's this for? And so how did you use that? Uh, How did you think through your your finances and and how did that um, enable you to take uh, the risks that you've taken?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Talk to people that are like 10 or 15 years out and ask them, take a poll of how many people have taken a dramatic pay cut. And I think your, your results there would be kind of surprising in the legal profession, right? Like I think, Clearly, people that are startup people or people that, you know, just pursue alternative ways of like investing and that kind of thing have definitely seen the like this, the, the, the sort of troughs and the peaks. But lawyers like I think you would you talk to a lot of them, uh, especially the ones that have gone like sort of the big, big law and then corporate route. They've never really had a meaningful reduction in salary like year over year. And I've done it twice, right? I went from Latham to the fintech company. That was, you know, like probably at least a 25% haircut in total comp, maybe 30%. And then I went from Apple to Nest. And and, and again, I mean, I got a bunch of equity and stuff that like later was worth money, but like you didn't know that when you were signing up. I mean, it was just paper at the time. Uh, But my reduction in salary was more than 50%. Right. And I had two kids. I had a expensive lease in mountain view and, 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 uh, my wife's a physical therapist. And so she does a lot of great for the world, but she's not bringing in like tons of money. And so, uh, it was, it was that, I mean, again, that was what I was kind of talking about before, but why I think the move to nest for so many reasons was, you know, maybe my proudest professional move because for so many reasons I shouldn't have done it. Right. Like, and, and as a lawyer, I definitely shouldn't have done it because that's just not in our DNA to take risks like that. And we like counsel, we make a living off of counseling against taking risks. And I just, I think ultimately, look, I had enough to like take care of what I needed to take care of. I would have never put my family in a position where I didn't. But I lost like all the bennies that come from a big company. I didn't have didn't have a 401k that year. I didn't have like my healthcare plan was dramatically different from what I had at, at Apple. Like um, I had no stock. I, mean, I didn't have all this great restricted stock at Apple. I mean, I left it all on the table and I went to a company with, like I said, money that could have been worth nothing and a salary that was lower. My base salary at Nest and I was um, eight years out of law school was lower than my first year at Latham salary. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, but I, I think, look, I did that. I think if, if, if nothing would have happened with Nest and I was making that for five years, I probably would have had to sell out and go back to making money again. So money's important, but, if you never, it's kind of like back to like, tell me the fuck you moment on your resume. Like if you never take yourself off the track, you never take a risk. And sometimes risks are correlated with not getting paid as much. And that could be taking a public interest job or a job in the government where you're going to obviously take less money, you know, volunteering on things that takes away time when you could be, you know, making more money. Like. <clears throat> I mean, those are the things that are going to open the doors to like the great opportunities, you know? So I think you just have to get comfortable at some level, that have enough money to like not compromise your family or your own core needs, but don't get obsessed with like the W-2 every year because there's a whole lot of stuff that happened that year, hopefully that were better because you didn't pick the highest income path, you know?
0: And I think that's also, it seems like that's part of a narrative, you know, like, I hope your, your one's own narrative of their self is like, Hey, I tried something interesting because I've definitely met a number of equity partners at large firms. These are people pulling in well over a million dollars and they say to me, Hey, you know, when I share some of the things I'm working on and directions I'm taking, they say, Hey, I wish I took a risk. And this is even before I left, you know, for like Goodwin. like, you know, even before I left there, I heard so many equity partners, not all of them, but like, more than I would have expected. Say something like that, and I can see it in their face. I can see the palpable desire to have done something else. Because uh, the goal in the handcuffs, I think, is it's it's a little more complicated and nuanced than people realize. It's also about you know what motivates you or how motivated you are to try something uh, and to to just have a narrative of yourself that you tried that you did things. Because after a while, it becomes kind of routine, you know, especially for a litigator a lot of litigators are like, Hey, you know what? I've kind of seen it all. I've already seen how this all pans out. I know the story. Uh, so I I think they admire people that take those risks. And I think, um, I definitely learned a lot from you about, um, you know, I consider myself to be someone who knows how to take those kind of asymmetric risks and who knows how to use outreach and, and talking to people to do that. But I definitely feel like I've, uh, I've, uh, added some arrows to my quiver. If that's expression, I feel like I've learned a little bit from you about, uh, how to do that. I'm excited to share this. No, that's great. Glad we did this. Hey, thanks for having me. It's fun.
1: This is good. Yeah. I'm gonna stop the yeah.